If you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. Mooney, in your prayer, you said not just for Oak Valley, but for every church that claims the name of Christ. I want you to hear that again. Not just for Oak Valley, but for every church who claims the name of Christ. I hope that we as a church... continue to grow in our understanding of our connection with the body of Christ, that our love and appreciation will grow for sister churches. I hope and pray that there is never a sense of self-righteousness that is developed here. Uh, and I hope that there is uh, uh, never uh, a sense in which we feel as though we are apart from, but rather that we are connected to by the blood of Christ with every other body of Christ and that we are connected together with every believer because we are family and those who have been purchased by the blood of Christ are blood-bought. And for us to take any attitude or feeling toward any other brother and sister in Christ is to lessen in our own minds and in the way we act, to lessen the significance of the blood of Christ in bringing together the people that God chose before the foundation of the world chose us in Him. That's the reason we say not just for Oak Valley, but for every church who bears the name of Jesus. I also want to say that uh, this is a season of great distraction. And, and Booney, if we're dealing with uh, apathy as well, uh, between our own apathy and between the distractions of this season can be a difficult time. It's one of the reasons why we set aside a time uh, for our own personal devotion time. And I hope that you uh, have been blessed and are being encouraged and even convicted uh, as you are working through our Advent devotion book. Um, the insight that Tozer has that God has given him, uh, I was sharing with a friend of mine, uh, is timeless. Uh, we will read Tozer uh, 50 years from now, if we're still living, you'll read him and the things that he has said that were true when he wrote them and when he preached them and when he spoke them will be true 50 years from now, 150 years from now, 200 years from now. Um, I hope you are being encouraged and challenged by them. I know that I have been. It has helped me in dealing with the distractions. Uh, it has also encouraged me uh, and has, if you will, uh, helped me move from being lukewarm and even cold uh, to becoming more warm. And I pray that for you as well. 
During this Advent, uh, we have been giving our uh, attention to the glory of Advent. So far, we've considered the glory of Advent uh, as it is a divine decision that was made in eternity. Uh, let me try to state it as we did two weeks ago. The Lord, Yahweh, the triune God, planned redemption to display His glory primarily to see His glory in His grace. He planned redemption to display it even before he created the universe or any person. Did you hear that again? That the Lord, Yahweh, the Godhead, the triune God, planned redemption to display his glory, primarily to see the glory in his grace, even before he created uh, the universe or any man. So the purpose of creation seems to be, by God's order, the arena in which God was to, and is continuing to, in fact, display His glory through His grace to bring about His plan of redemption. So uh, if, we, if we don't get this, we're going to miss, and, and this is one of the reasons why I've been so encouraged during this season because our minds and our attentions have been brought to this, oftentimes we think creation, then we think redemption. We think creation, fall, redemption. But as we saw two weeks ago, it is redemption, creation, fall, and then the carrying out of redemption. So creation is the arena in which God is carrying out the work of redemption. In other words, baseball precedes the stadium. The stadium is built to do what? To play the game, to play baseball. Creation is the arena or the stadium in which redemption is being worked out and being played. Last week, we viewed the glory of Advent from a slightly different position and perspective. In other words, we turned the diamond a bit, uh, and we saw its brilliant beauty yet another way. We peered at the gift of justification through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We said, and hopefully we haven't forgotten, that justification brings to fallen and damned sons of Adam the remarkable, favorable, legal standing. Rather than be forever cast away in eternal punishment, which is what we deserve, Christ dies bearing the wrath of God and is raised from the dead, conquering sin and death, providing forgiveness of sin, and also has his righteousness counted to our account. Our sin debt is paid, and then a completely sufficient, and mind you, listen, eternal portion of the spiritual currency necessary to be received into the presence of God, that is the righteousness of Christ, is deposited to our account account. He died, 
our sins were forgiven, then He deposited into our account the spiritual currency necessary for us to stand in the presence of God. That spiritual currency is Christ's righteousness. Uh, and we looked at that last week. This morning we are going to take another view of the glory of Advent. So I want you, if you will, you're in Jeremiah chapter 31. We'll look at parts of 31 and 32 for just a minute. And then we're going to go to John 3.16. We'll make the connection. Jeremiah 31 in verse 3. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Now, if you will, turn over in verse 27 of the same chapter. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and of the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Hear that. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Look in chapter 32. Verse 36. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, uh, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart. And with all my soul. Now if you will look in John chapter 3 and verse 16. Most of you will not need to turn there. But 
I'd encourage you to do that because we will spend the next few minutes in that one verse. John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. What we just read in Jeremiah is the word from God that a new covenant would be established with his people. If you'll recall, Hebrews chapter 8 and 9, both of those chapters speak of this new covenant. It's important for us to get this because there were covenants that in time, in time, I want you to catch this, Covenants that in time preceded the covenant of redemption. However, I think we would be thinking wrongly to think of a covenant covenant that preceded the covenant of redemption. Or God's plan for redemption, given that we have already seen in Ephesians 1, that that covenant preceded all other covenants. So our aim this morning is to consider this new covenant, this covenant that is being brought about that is actually not new, but that we have already said we recognize the glory of Advent because it was established in eternity past. I want us to consider it this morning, the glory of Advent, a divine gift that transcends time. I believe John 3.16 points to this end primarily because of its concise message. Um, This verse is one of those nuggets in Scripture uh, that you gather up uh, to to show off when you're trying to show the people in town the richness of the minefield of God and His salvation. You know, when the folks would go out into the... Uh, to the gold fields or they would go out panning for gold and they would get that one big nugget and they would bring it back to have it uh, estimated so that they could mark off their plot where they were going to mine gold and and that was the one that they wanted to show they wanted to show just how good that gold was this is one of those verses of scripture it's one of those things that we pull out because it's concise and it's beautiful and like any single nugget It doesn't show all of the mass of the rich vein of treasure, but it certainly is enough to get us wondering and wanting to find more. Listen to it again. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So here's how we'll break it down this morning. If you're taking notes, uh, you may want to jot these four simple observations down. First, God is a transcendent God. God is a transcendent God. Second, the love with which He loves us is a transcending love. God is a transcendent God. The love with which He loves us is a transcending love. Third, the gift He gives is a transcending gift. And fourth, the result has transcending effects. 
so that we hone in properly with our thinking, our emphasis this morning is specifically transcending time. Okay? So we'll be brief this morning because we are going to be just that narrow in our thinking. Now before we begin to look at this, it might help us to define the word transcend. Fundamentally, the word transcend means to go above, to excel, to rise above certain limitations. Uh, and it can also mean to be superior. Uh, and I think it, it certainly does. So we might say uh, that at the time Michael Jordan was playing in the NBA, his athleticism, his basketball acumen, his just sheer competitiveness was transcendent. Now, everyone may not agree with that, but I think that a lot who a lot of folks would say that that was true. In other words, he exceeded limitations that had been put upon the sport uh, in a lot of ways. He exceeded boundaries that uh, had before uh, kind of sealed things as far as play. Well, God is a transcendent God. So what do we mean when we say that God is a transcendent God. Are we talking about him being transcendent as a God in the same way that Michael Jordan was transcendent, so to speak, uh, in his basketball play? Not so. But it is to say that God exists above time and space. He's above created order, and he's not bound by any limitations set upon creation. Now, this is important for us to get to understand the nature of what is being said when Jesus says that for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish. This is a word that is being given to us by the second person of the triune Godhead who is talking about a transcendent God. And we know that in some respects He is transcendent because He is sending something. And he is sending something from heaven to earth. So, because he is above time, he's able to see clearly all of time. Okay? Because he is above time, he sees clearly all of time. And it's clear that not only does he see all of time, he sees events in time and he acts in time. It's important for us to understand that when we're beginning to think about God. It's important for us to understand that when we begin to think about God's love and we begin to talk about God and His love. He sees all of time. He is above it. He creates it. He sees all of it. He sees events in time and He acts in time. So what does that mean for us here? It means that God, who transcends time, planned in eternity, remember, before there was ever a creation to save a people for His glory. In other words, He, in His infinite wisdom and power, in His godness, in His transcendence, saw all of everything before there was anything. And he sees all of that, so we understand that and recognize that. His work would display his glory to all of creation and heaven. 
And the wonder of that glory is that he would act in that time. So we hear that he acted in time. And just think about through Scripture, how did he act in time? Well, one of the first things that we see that he did when he acted in time, he came to Adam in the garden. He acted in time. In the midst of all that he created, he comes and he visits with Adam in the garden. He acted in time when he spoke to Moses at the burning bush. He acted in time when he heard Israel cry out in despair and he comes to them and he acts in time by sending a deliverer. And then we hear in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption of as sons. That's huge. A transcendent God who creates time acts in time and we know that time is of importance because when the fullness of time had come in an exact moment in history, not at the beginning of history, but at an exact moment predetermined by God when everything else, as far as events are concerned, brings about the exact time and the fullness of that time, God acts in time. A transcendent God. Adam mentioned in our call to worship this thing of God's transcendence and His uh, eminence. I had uh, written to our folks who... Uh, help us lead worship here each week and as I do when we're planning the service I'll normally send out what I say our, our, our thoughts and comments just to try to help everybody understand at least how I'm thinking about the service and one of those things this week was is that every week our goal is to show God as being transcendent and also show Him as being imminent. You know why? Because it is the transcendent God that we look at and gaze upon and we stand in awe of. But then He doesn't stay far away from us. Every week we talk about how He, being a transcendent God, does not leave us alone, but in the midst of history, our history, our lives, day to day, God comes and acts. And that's the point that Jesus was making in Nicodemus. For God, this transcendent God, has done something incredible. There's a part of the glory of the advent. Only a transcendent God. Now listen to this. This is why this is important. Only a transcendent God, a God above and beyond time, unaffected by the limitations of time, can come at exactly the right time. Otherwise, He just haphazardly shows up. If you've ever been in the middle of something, uh, and you needed someone five minutes before, and they show up five minutes after you needed them, you know why? They didn't have a panoramic view of time. They hadn't created time. If they had known that and they had been interested in you 
and what was going on in your life than they would have been there five minutes before. God, because of who He is as a transcendent God, is able to act in exactly the right time. Not to press too deep into the other things it will say, but here's what I want you to hear. If you've not yet trusted Christ, just hold on. We're going to encourage you today to trust Him now. But just know that God, will work and do what He's going to do in every individual's life. You know when? When the fullness of that time comes and He has already planned it and He knows when He's going to act. But God's love is a transcendent love. For God so loved the world. God's love transcends time. Now, how do we know that? Well, we know that it is transcendent in that it transcends knowledge. So look in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. It's interesting that when Paul is praying, he is praying for his brothers and sisters in Ephesus that they would come to know just how incredible God's love is, a love that transcends knowledge. Listen to how he puts it. In chapter 3, verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, so that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length, and height, and depth, and to know what? The know the love of Christ that what? Surpasses knowledge. In other words, that transcends knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. But we also know that it transcends time. When did God's love for the world begin? When did God's love for the world begin? In eternity. Before anything was ever created. When does God's love for the world end? Well, if we take to heart what He said back in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 3, we find out when does it end. It doesn't. It's everlasting. And it's not that I started loving you today and it's not going to end. It is that I loved you in eternity and this love is everlasting. It transcends time. God's love was purposed in eternity. We heard that in Jeremiah 31.3. He loves with an everlasting love. That's what, why Paul was able to write to the Romans, What shall separate you from the love of God? Nothing, nothing shall separate you from the love of God. Why? Well, there are all kinds of reasons why we talk about we are held by God and He's not going to let us go, and that's true. But God had purposed in eternity past to love Christ, this love that He has in the Godhead, a perfect love, 
And in that, he had purpose to love those who would be in Christ. In eternity past, he purposed to love them. Now, why am I stressing that? Well, I'm stressing that because this word world that John uses over and over again carries with it a particular meaning. When John uses this word world, he is talking about this sinful place. In other words, the world as it is packaged up in its sin. Now think about this with me for just a moment. Do you like good things or bad things? We like good things. We like good things. We don't like bad things. Think about the foods that you like. Do you like good food or you like bad food? Oh, we like good food. Do we like good children or bad children? Oh, we really like good children. We like good things. We don't like bad things. Well, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Have you ever chosen to like something that was despicable that should be hated? Well, most of us haven't, but God did. God, by His own choosing, purposed to love. Now here's where this cuts across the grain with us, and we're not going to get into a lot of detail here, but I just want you to hear this and understand it. When we're talking about God's love, we're talking about an entirely different way of thinking about love than you and I think about. You know what stirs us in regards to love? Our emotions. It's an emotional response. We generally love being stirred from our emotions. There's something about this person or this thing or this place or whatever it is that we're talking about. There's something about it that is appealing to us and our emotions are stirred to love at whatever level we're loving. Whether it be a friend, whether it be a spouse, whether it be a child, whatever it is. And we know that's true. We know that's true. But that's not how God loves. Now, I'm not saying that God is not emotional. I'm just saying that God doesn't begin with looking at the goodness of something to determine that He's going to love it. He loved within the Godhead because it brings Him glory and there is righteousness and there is wholeness and there is completion and there is perfection. So it would be foolish not to love Himself and love the Godhead. Beyond that, note everything else that God loves, as far as we can tell, is less than God. And when that love is toward this world, He has purpose to love that which otherwise would be unlovable. God's love transcends time. In eternity, He chose to love a sinful, rebellious world. And in Christ chose a sinful, rebellious people to love, not because they were lovable, but because He purposed to love them. He purposed to love them. I'll interject this at this point. It's one of the reasons when we get to 1 John, we are told to love like God. You say, we can't love like God. God in us, we can begin to purpose to love that which isn't lovable. 
we can purpose at that time to love that which otherwise we wouldn't love or couldn't love. That's the reason that we are able to love each other in our relationships as husbands and wives and with children and with others in the community and embrace and love and care for those that are sinful and unloving. Why? Because God does enable us once He resides in us to begin to, at some levels, to love like He loves simply by just purposing to love. God's love transcends time. The gift He gives transcends time. Remember last week we identified the gift. I'm going to ask this question. I'm going to give you the answer. But how many of us remember what the gift was? Well, the gift was justification. That's what the gift was. The justification that came by way of Christ. God acts in time at exactly the right time to bring the gift, that gift of justification. That gift transcended time. It encompassed all of time. How do we know that? Well, take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 11, and I'll make the point that is being made there, I believe, in everything that Jesus is saying uh, when he's talking to Nicodemus. Because he's pointing back to the Old Testament and he's pointing back to the covenant, and he's pointing back to the fact that the Spirit of God is at work. But in Hebrews chapter 11, when we say that the gift that God gives transcends time, you know what we're saying? We're saying that God came at exactly the right time, but He came thousands of years later. And in our mind, we would think, okay, I understand that He has come, that gift has come. Now everything is okay from this point on. But what about the past? What about the past? Well, Hebrews chapter 11 serves as a testimony to us that it took care of the past as well. Is that everything had been pointing to Christ and those who had faith and trusted in God and His provision were taken care of in the justifying work of Christ. We won't read the whole chapter, but just listen to a few. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old did what? Received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And then the rest of that chapter begins to recall certain individuals. You say, are, you, say, are these the only individuals that are included in this? No, these are the individuals that God had told their story throughout the pages of Scripture. They serve as a group representative of all of those in the past who had trusted and believed in Him. The gift that God gave in Christ. The justification for those who by faith trusted in Him transcended time and went all the way back and gathered up the very first one and extends on to the very last one. And here's what we know. Is that that work 
of justification extends into eternity. Not that others are being justified, but that the justifying work of Christ in depositing that eternal deposit of His righteousness stands for all eternity. For God so loved the world that He did what? That He gave His only begotten Son. It'd be easy for us to reason to this because Christ is at the very heart of justification. And what do we know about Christ? That Christ is eternal. His righteousness is eternal. The righteousness that He imputes upon the redeemed is eternal. It stands in and over time. It transcends time. And then finally, the result has transcending effects. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but what? Have ever lasting life. Let's listen to a few texts and hear how Jesus talks about that. In John chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Let's hear how Jesus prays in John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. Let's hear how the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Real time, real time. Listen, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a, with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And listen to that last phrase. What does it say? And so we will always be with the Lord. And so we will always be with the Lord. Why do we pause in Advent 
to give attention to this. Here's why. So that we can encourage, as Paul went on to write, one another with these words. A transcendent God who transcends time, whose love transcends time, whose gift to us transcends time, with the results that transcends time. And He comes to us in time. And for those whom He has called, we come to Him in time. So that our time is then spent with how we began today. Time in worshiping the transcendent God who comes to us. That, my friend, is another way to turn the diamond of the advent and look at the glory of God and its tremendous significance. Will you pray with me? Father, in a season when we should most be burning hot with passion for You and Your glory, as we remember You sending a gift in time that transcends all of time, transporting those who believe from not just living in this time, but living with You in all eternity. Father, thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ. I ask You today that if there is any hint of coldness or lukewarmness or apathy or indifference in any of our hearts that you would today so convict us that we would run headlong into you and embrace and grab a hold of in faith the Lord Jesus Christ and the work that He has done for us to redeem us, to rescue us, to reconcile us, to restore us, and to bring us into Your presence for eternity. And it's in His name we ask these things. Amen.